Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles open up to the 62nd Psalm. Going to begin with the words of David here momentarily in Psalm 62. So let's all be looking together in the Word of God during this part of our worship in Psalm, the 62nd chapter. It is great to see everybody tonight. I appreciate so much your presence this evening and your participation. Those things have a way of uh, just providing great encouragement to our assemblies. And I hope that you've been able to enjoy this afternoon, this good day that God has given us with a little bit of rain, but a little bit of sunshine as well. And it's been a good day. And I hope that you're ready right now to close it out by spending just the next few minutes here in the Word of God. I went a little long this morning and so... Actually, I probably shouldn't say that I'm going to go shorter this evening because every time I say that, I still go longer than I want to. So uh, let's just start preaching. In Psalm 62, let's read together here in verse 1. In Psalm 62 and in verse 1, there David says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. My soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation and my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. What a wonderful sentiment David expresses in these verses to wait before God in silence, to meditate and to think deeply on the Lord and upon the Lord's ways. Are you doing that? Are you doing what David describes in these verses? Is this something that you regularly spend time intentionally doing? Where you quiet all of the external noises of this world so that you can be quieted internally and reflect upon the Lord and reflect upon your relationship with Him. If I were to just go around the room right now and ask everybody a show of hands for everyone who did Psalm 62 in a meaningful way this past week outside of the worship assemblies, I'm going to guess that's probably going to be pretty embarrassing for a whole lot of us, present company included. We just struggle with this. We struggle with the idea of sitting in silence or maybe in the words of that song that Rick just led us in, being still and giving a significant amount of time and attention to just thinking about the Lord and thinking about all that He is. Why is that? Why do we have such trouble doing that, making quiet time for just us and God? Well, as someone once observed about that, he said, if I had time to wait silently before the Lord, I'd probably fall asleep doing it because I'm so overworked and so tired. Overworked and underrested. Isn't that very much the hallmark and the mantra of our day and time? We are so busy and we have so very much to do. We have so much stuff that we try to pack into our week. And then we seemingly have so much more that we try to pack into our weekends. We are constantly on the go. And as a result, who's really got time to pause and to rest and to ponder and to reflect on the ways of God? In fact, even if I was somehow able to eke out a few extra minutes to do that kind of thing, what I'd have to do is I'd probably have to rob from the rest department. I'd probably have to go to sleep later or get up earlier in order to make time for that. We do live in a very busy world. We are so hurried, we are so occupied that oftentimes we almost feel like we need to apologize for taking a nap. Have you ever done that before? Take a nap. Somebody catches you taking a nap. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Why why do you apologize for that? What is so wrong about that? 
We're running as fast as we can, running as hard as we can, trying to get as much done as we possibly can. And I would suggest to you this evening that not only is that detrimental to our physical bodies, but even more importantly, it is gravely detrimental to our souls. Which is why I want to share with you a passage that really in a lot of ways just stands in stark contrast to the way that we're running and doing life here in the 21st century. It's found in Exodus, the 20th chapter, and it is part of the Ten Commandments. Now, I realize that whenever you cite something from the Ten Commandments, especially the passage that we're going to read in the Ten Commandments, there's a lot of concern about all of that. And I don't want you to panic as we read these verses. This evening I'm not going to bind the law of Moses on anyone, but I want you to notice as we read here what a different way of life this is compared to our hurry-up-and-go society today. In Exodus chapter 20, I'm reading in verse 8, where God says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Moses tells the Israelites that that society was to stop every seven days for a day of complete and total rest. Everybody was to do that. Everything was to do that. Even the animals and the livestock were to take a day off mandated by the Lord. And before you tell yourself, well, well, that was a different way of life back then. That's back when life was really simple. It was simpler times. Things were much easier to get that kind of thing done. Stop it. Stop it. This command was given to a nomadic people. Furthermore, this command was given to an agricultural people. Does anybody here know anything about farming? A few of you do know some stuff about farming. And you know that farming is a constant, continual way of life. And in this particular point in time in world history, it was very much a do-it-yourself style of farming. You had to make your own tools. You didn't have the benefit of tractors and John Deere equipment. Not only did you have to make your own tools, you had to make your own clothes. You had to churn your own butter, had to fetch your own water, and all the thousand and one other things that had to be done pretty much by hand. So don't kid yourself, this was not easy and free living where people just sat around with an abundance of free and excess leisure time. No. This too, that we're reading here in Exodus, this too was a busy culture and yet, and yet to those people God commanded a day of rest. I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested to know more about that. Which is why this evening I do want us to think a little bit about that day of rest. I want us to consider some principles about the Sabbath for today. You know, the Sabbath is a hugely significant concept in the pages of Scripture. As Moses points out here in Exodus, the 20th chapter, there in verse 11, it's actually rooted in God's creation of the universe. And it, of course, is found all over the pages of our Bible. It's found in the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament. There's nearly 140 references specifically to the Sabbath, not to mention all the other references to rest in the Bible. 
And I think seeing all those references in the Bible, I think that probably means that we're supposed to learn something from that. I think there's something from that that we're supposed to take to heart. Now, of course, usually whenever we talk about the Sabbath, we're usually quick to, to point out what? We're usually quick to point out, well, we're not under that law. We're not bound by that covenant anymore today. And so as a result, we just kind of dismiss the whole thing as being really not all, that, not all that relevant to us today. Mostly the only time we ever even bother looking and talking about this Sabbath stuff is whenever we're refuting Sabbatarianism. That is, people who want to try and bind the Sabbath law today. I'm thinking specifically about the Seventh-day Adventists. We have a Seventh-day Adventist church right here in town, just not far here from our church building. And those are the folks who want to try and bind the Sabbath law. They think that is still a part of the covenant of Jesus Christ. And those are the folks who assembled for worship, not today, but yesterday. And to be clear, for clarity's sake, we do need to be ready to point out why it is that the Sabbath law and binding that, well, that would be an error for us today. Would you hold your place in Exodus? Look in Galatians 3. In Galatians 3, Paul speaks here about the changing of covenants. And he says very, in my opinion, I think he says this very clearly. In Galatians chapter 3, I'm reading in verse 24. There Paul says, Galatians 3 verse 24, he says, So then the law... The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Understand very clearly, we are not under the law of Moses. And I want to reiterate to you this evening that the things that I'm about to say, I am in no way trying to press upon you or bind upon you or me the Sabbath law today. I can't do that. I won't do that. In fact, I should even say that I really chafe at that expression that often gets tossed around that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. That makes me very uncomfortable. First of all, because that terminology is not found in Scripture. But maybe even just more fundamentally, the idea of Sunday being the Christian Sabbath, eh, that just doesn't really work because the Sabbath is on Saturday. It's the seventh day of the week, not the first day of the week. And so it is important for us to make those kinds of disclaimers. It is important for us to understand that. and It's important for us to help others to understand that. But I'm afraid that once we're done running down Sabbatarian thinking, what that does is that results in a mindset within us that says, you know what, that Sabbath stuff, that's just, that's just not for me. There's just not really anything in there for us. doesn't have to worry, about, to worry about thinking about that or keeping that. I don't have to worry about finding some kind of application for that in my life. Let's move on to other things. Well, well hold on just a minute. You know, that's not what we do with any of the other laws that are given in that Old Covenant. Does anybody really imagine that we learn just absolutely nothing from the principles that are contained within the law of Moses? Does not the Ten Commandments and the law, does, not that, does that not tell us some stuff about, about the lawgiver? Does it not help us to understand some things about God Himself? And furthermore, did Paul not just say there in Galatians chapter 3 where we just read that that old law, it was our guardian? Or maybe your translation says it was our schoolmaster that helped to bring us to Christ. That says to me that there's something that we can benefit from when we consider the old law. 
And this evening, I think there's something that we can benefit from when we consider what God said about the Sabbath. And so for just a few moments tonight, I want us to stop holding the Sabbath law at arm's length, and I want us to think about it for a little bit. I want us to think about specifically three principles that the Sabbath and the command that was given all those centuries ago to Israel, what we can learn from, what we can profit from, what it can teach us today. And so, as you turn back to Exodus, the 20th chapter, in Exodus chapter 20, let's just see. What does the law teach us about the lawgiver and what enduring principles are found within that law? First and foremost, what the Sabbath law teaches us is it teaches us a valuable lesson about the principle of work. I'm reading in verse 9 again, Exodus 20 and in verse 9, where Moses says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now, when we read these verses in Exodus chapter 20, where are we? Geographically, where are we? Well, we're at Mount Sinai. But of course, the Israelites are not going to remain at Mount Sinai. They're eventually going to leave. They're about to go into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And it is in that land that this and all the other laws are going to be especially applicable as they go into that place that they were about to inherit. That place that was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. A place where when they arrive there, God is going to bless them abundantly, going to provide for them, going to take care of them. But guess what? All that blessing that God was going to do did not mean that they would then come into the promised land And everybody would just sit on their front porch and rock in the rocking chair and just twiddle their thumbs and just kill all their free time every day. God wasn't just going to just rain down all of the blessings upon them and the Israelites just sit around doing nothing. No. They were going to have to work. They would have to plant and to hoe and to harvest. Animals would have to be tended. Fences would have to be mended. All kinds of chores and responsibilities would have to be taken care of because in that promised land, God's people would have to work. And that is a principle that finds itself throughout all of Scripture, that God wants His people to work, and in fact, that God honors hard Work. Since we're right here close, can you fall back to the book of Genesis really quick with me? In Genesis chapter 2, I want you to notice how work has always been important to God. And when I say always, I mean from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, this is verse 2. Genesis 2 verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished His work. He finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. Do you see there? Work actually predates sin. I think sometimes folks have the mistaken idea that work was part of the curse whenever sin was brought into this world, but that's actually not so. Work was always a part of the picture. In fact, work was so important to God, it's part of His character and part of His nature, that it should come as no surprise to us that God then commands man to work. I'm dropping down to verse 15, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God gave Adam work to do even in that beautiful garden that we call paradise even before sin entered into the world. And you need to know that that principle, it stretches all the way across Genesis. It stretches all the way across Exodus. It stretches all the way across the Old Testament and stretches all the way across into the New Testament 
The covenant under which you and I live today. I'm looking for 2 Thessalonians 3. In 2 Thessalonians 3, you and I need to understand this. I don't want to take for granted that everybody just knows this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm reading in verse 10, as Paul told those early Christians, 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, that if anyone is not willing to work, he should not eat. Now I'm spending a moment here on this work principle because I fear that we are living in a time where work is not being valued. And I do think this maybe is about as timely of a point that could ever be made. Think about where we are in this country, where we are right now. I saw a post the other day where somebody had listed all of the dozens of restaurants and other uh, facilities and places that were looking for workers, posting, hey, now hiring, and they can't get anybody who's willing to work. How many people today, right now, in this country, in this county, in this city, are content to just continue mooching off of the government, drawing those unemployment checks, just sitting back and enjoying, just enjoying loafing around? That's a problem, isn't it? That's a big problem in our society right now. In fact, even people who are working, I think people like you and I, oftentimes we do that work with very little pride in what we do. Many times we do that work because we're really only interested in drawing a paycheck so that at the end of all of that we can then take that money and go do what? We can go have fun. We can spend that on ourselves. We can recreate. We can play. We're simply working for the weekend. I think for many folks, and Christians are included in this, work is almost viewed as a... A necessary evil. It's something we probably wouldn't even choose to do if we didn't have to. It's a necessary evil that really stands in the way of us doing the things that we really want to do. Can I ask you though, how does that harmonize with what we just read about work in Exodus 20, and in Genesis 2, and in 2 Thessalonians 3? The Bible says that we were made to work. We were made to be productive. When we work, that gives us a sense of accomplishment and achievement. We are fulfilling one of the very purposes for which God has placed us here upon this earth. Furthermore, when we work, that enables us to to do all kinds of things that God wants us to do. That enables us to provide for our families, 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. It enables us to share with others who are in need, Ephesians 4 verse 28. And it also enables us to give and to contribute to the work of the Lord's church. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Do you see how work actually empowers us to carry out the will of God in our lives? It's kind of neat when you stop and think about it that way. I think what that means then for us is that means that we need to be very, very careful that we not be conformed to the work ethic of our world around us, or maybe I should say the lack of work ethic in the world around us. Because much of our world's view about work could probably be categorized by what the book of Proverbs often refers to as laziness. The ways of the sluggard. And if you read those passages in Proverbs, it doesn't take very long to figure out that God has very little tolerance for people who have a poor attitude toward work. We need to work. We need to teach our sons and our daughters to work. We need to hold ourselves to the standard that we see consistently taught all throughout Scriptures, that work is good, that we need to be ready to work, that God in fact wants us to work, and that God will honor hard 
work. I think that, that really is the starting point for us to understand those principles that are found in the law of the Sabbath. Now as you turn back to Exodus chapter 20, once Israel's been instructed about the value of working and working hard, that then leads to the next thing that Moses says in Exodus chapter 20, look in verse 10. Exodus 20 and verse 10, well six days you shall labor and do all your work, verse 9, verse 10 now. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. Right here is maybe the central principle that the Sabbath teaches us, and that is the principle of rest. You know, I mentioned a moment ago that Israel was mostly an agricultural society, and of course, on a farm, if you've ever worked on a farm, done any kind of farm work, you, you know that there's always one more thing that needs to be done. It's hardly that you ever reach a point where it's like, everything is taken care of, everything is done. No, seemingly, there's always something else that needs to be done. Farmers today know that. But you know what? If that's true for farmers today who have all the benefits of big, expensive tractors and equipment, hay balers and irrigation systems, etc., then you know that that was especially true for farmers back in Bible times. There was always something that needed to get done on the farm. And yet, the Lord said, nope, not always. He says every seventh day, that's to stop. All of it is to stop. You are to shut it down completely and totally as it pertains to your labors. Everybody, in fact, everything is going to rest. Now that's a challenge for us today, isn't it? I think that's a huge challenge for us today. You know, I began with that passage this evening in Psalm the 62nd chapter about being silent before the Lord, being still before the Lord, and how if maybe we actually ended up doing that, we'd probably fall asleep from being so tired. And you know what? We are. We are so tired. We're just so pushed and we're stressed and we're burnt out that when we do maybe stop for even just a moment or a second, take a moment to sit down, it doesn't take long before fatigue sets in and maybe even takes over. And I, as the preacher, I see that. Because come Sunday, when I'm standing up here in this pulpit, I oftentimes will look out across this audience and I will see folks who are very quick to agree with the preaching when I'm preaching. You know what I'm talking about. I see folks, I see the evidence of folks who are overworked and underrested. Well, maybe what we need here is we need to see, yes, number one, we need to see the value of work. But equally so, secondly, we need to see the value of rest. Now, that does not mean, I'm not implying, that we need to become Sabbatarians and join the Seventh-day Adventist church and the whole nine yards on that. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am asking is, how can we read the Bible? And we could have taken the time, and actually entertained the idea this evening, of just reading a whole bunch of verses about the Sabbath to press this upon our minds. But how can we read all those hundred plus verses in the Bible about the Sabbath and about rest and still come away and think, you know... I think I can still go pedal to the metal all of the time. I don't really need rest. Rest is for sissies. Listen to me. The one who created you, the one who made and designed your body, the one who knows more about your physical body 
And the, more, the one who knows more about rest than you know or I know or any doctor or any physician could ever know, that one says, you need time to rest. And I do certainly understand that there may be seasons in life, there may be things that we go through where getting that rest can be, can be difficult. When you have a new baby introduced into your home, that's a tough period of time to try to get that rest. When maybe there's a lot of big deadlines going on at work, it's a particular time of the year, yeah. That can make getting rest difficult. Maybe for a young person, it's during this particular time of the year with finals and, and final exams and tests and getting ready for graduation. That can be a stressful time. But I'm asking you, are we really made to just go full throttle all of the time without rest? Can I offer for you just a couple of ideas for you to kind of put in your pocket and to think about a little bit? First of all, we need to recognize that not everything that is fun and entertaining and recreational is restful. This morning after services, Mickey Hamilton was telling me that they were fixing to head down to, to Florida for the next few days. And Cody was quick to tell her, hey, you guys have fun, have a good time. And that was totally appropriate for Cody to say. But I was quick to jump in there and to say as well, I hope you can get some rest. I hope you're able to just relax and enjoy your time there. Because the fact of the matter is, sometimes we play hard at work and we end up working hard at play. Have you ever gone on vacation and you've ran and done so much during that vacation that when you got home you needed a vacation from your vacation? I've had that happen before. You see, that's not restful. It may have been fun. It may have been enjoyable. It may have been really neat and you got to do a lot of cool stuff, but it didn't rest you up. And what that means is, is that means that we'll have to plan for rest. You know, sometimes we're filling up our schedule and our day planners with all these activities that we're going to go and we're going to do and when we get done with all of that, there's, well, there's no empty spaces on the schedule for rest. There's no places in there for us to recharge our physical batteries. When do we just be instead of do? And that does mean as well from time to time that we're going to need to learn to just say no. And to say no even to good things, to good activities and to good opportunities. You know, we may get invitations and we may have opportunities arise where we could go and we could do something that would be, be really good, be really enjoyable, maybe even doing stuff with other Christians. And man, I'm always quick to just thumbs up that and jump right on those opportunities. But you know what? We need to have the discipline from time to time to recognize, nope, can't do that. I'm worn out. And we need to have the discipline to say, no. No, I, I can't do that. I need to rest. Our family needs to rest. You do know that Jesus did that, don't you? Look with me in, Matthew, excuse me, in Mark chapter 6. Jesus had an infinite number of things that He could have done. Lots of things that He could have tended to while He was here upon this earth. But you know what? Even Jesus Christ occasionally had to say, Mark 6.39 said to the apostles, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure to even to eat. And in the very next verse you come to find out that the apostles, they did. When's the last time you did what Jesus did here? When's the last time that you said no to a request to do something that would have ended up adding more to your already packed schedule and you said no to that simply on the basis of I 
need to rest. Honestly now, do we really think that we're better than Jesus? Do we think as you turn back there to Genesis chapter 2, after God got done creating the universe and He rested, do we think we're better than God? Both of whom made time for rest. Can I just say right here that this second principle, it really ought to cause us to evaluate and to be very careful with how we spend our Saturday nights. You know, in the Old Testament, Jews were very, very careful in making preparations for the Sabbath day. They were very careful about that. Everything had to be cleaned. Everything had to be cooked. The fires had to already be started. Everything had to be prepared ahead of time because once the Sabbath started, and on the Jewish calendar the Sabbath started on Friday evening, Friday at sunset, at least our understanding of that. But once that time came, there was to be no activity that could be construed as work. And so I'm asking, do we see the value in that idea of making preparations for for our special day? I understand very clearly Sunday is not the same thing as the Sabbath. There is some, some differences there. But are we making preparations in anticipation for that? Do we do things like you know, simply getting our clothes ready the night before? Maybe getting our minds prepared and focused on what we're going to come and do on the next day? At bare minimum, are we getting to bed at a decent hour so that we're not zombies whenever we come in here? Because that is the third principle that we learn from the Sabbath. And that is, Exodus 20 shows us the principle of worship. As you turn back to Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 7 again. In Exodus chapter 20, not verse 7, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Part of the Sabbath was to honor and to worship God. Now by the time of the New Testament, what that meant is that meant that Jews went to the local synagogue and when they came to the synagogue, it is there that they heard the Word of God being read. They were took part in congregational prayers and they were assembled together as the people of God. Now it would have been very easily, easy, especially, especially with that first principle, the importance of work. It would have been easy to see work almost as being kind of an acceptable excuse from time to time. I mean, hey... God wants me to support my family, doesn't He? And, and believe me, I get that. I do. I try to put myself back in, back in those Bible times thinking as an Israelite. I mean, cows don't understand that today is the Sabbath day. All the cow cares about is I want breakfast. And you know, those crops, those crops don't just get up and walk themselves into the barn. No, those crops just want to be harvested even if harvest day falls on the Sabbath. But you know what? God knew all of that. And still, still he said, I want you to take one day a week to cease from all of those labors. One day a week to rest from your work. One day a week to focus on me and to focus on my things. There's a time for work and there's a time for rest. And that provides as well a time for worship. And while I'll say one more time, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. It is, however, a time that God has designated us for worship. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, as well, Acts chapter 20 and in verse 7, we see that the first day of the week held great significance to those first century Christians. Passages like those, and of course even testimony outside of Scripture, shows us 
that for first century Christians there was a priority of meeting together as God's people to worship the Lord. But sometimes I'm afraid we lose track of that. We lose track of that as a priority in our lives. Sometimes, for example, we let that first thing, we let that work business get out of balance. And as a result, work ends up eating worship. And yes, I do understand not everybody has the benefit and the luxury of getting Sundays off. And we, of course, have to try to do the best that we can to work within that. I'm sure that even in New Testament times, there were slaves who really struggled with being able to come together on the first day of the week to worship God. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, I tend to think that's probably the reason that that church there was meeting at night, was to be able to accommodate some of those slaves. And you know, in our world, everything, at least here in this country, in our world, once upon a time, everything did stop on Sunday. Some of you are old enough to remember blue laws. And you can remember back in the days when everything was closed on Sundays. You didn't have stores and restaurants that you could go to. But it's not that way anymore. And so I understand that there's not easy answers to this work and worship conflict that sometimes exists. That can be hard for us to manage and to juggle. But I will simply just echo what God's Word is saying. God's Word is telling us that worship is, without a doubt, a priority to God. And it must be a priority to God's people. We cannot ever be content with this mindset of, oh well, got to work. I mean, you know, what can I say? Sorry, I can't come to church today. We need to strive for better than that. We need to try to manage our work so that we can give of our time, give of ourselves to the Lord. And the truth is, I can make this exact same point with that principle of rest. Because sometimes it's our rest, rest activities that end up interfering with worship. And when I say rest, many times what that means is that means our travels and our games and our fun and our recreation, those things stand in the way of us worshiping and assembling with the people of God. Sometimes maybe even it is. Just wanting to catch up on some of those Z's. Because I've been working so hard all week and you know what Sunday's the only day I got? I need to take a big long nap today. And as a result, we don't worship God as we should. The Sabbath law was given to people long ago to give them order and structure in their lives. But even more than that, it was given to those people to give them priorities in their lives. Worship matters to God. And the Sabbath law, it provided Israel a place and a time to make worship matter in their lives. My question to you tonight is, where is that space in your life and in my life? And furthermore, are you and I zealously guarding that space so that as we balance those first two principles of work and rest, we're making sure that we are regularly following that third principle of worship. One more verse this evening and the lesson will be yours. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's the words of Jesus. In Matthew the 11th chapter, Jesus makes a very famous statement there in verses 28 through 30. I want to notice in Matthew 11 and verses 28 and 29 where Jesus says there, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, Jesus is not talking here about a nap. He's not talking here about literal sleep. 
No, the rest here, contextually, is rest and relief from all of the additional regulations that the Pharisees were trying to bind upon the people, adding in addition to the law of Moses and all the difficulty and the weight that that was creating for people. And what Jesus envisioned was He envisioned a better way. A better way that will be a lighter burden that will offer a person rest for the soul. But it is of interest to me that when Jesus is looking for a metaphor to try and describe a deeper and closer walk with God, Jesus does not say, come to me and I'll help you go, 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 go. That's not what Jesus offers. Jesus says, come to me and I'll provide rest. I want that rest. I want the rest that Jesus offers so that I can serve God well in my work, so that I can serve God well in my worship. And furthermore, it'll enable me to have the rest of body that I need so that I can do what we started with in Psalm 62, where I can wait silently before the Lord, and I can be still, and I can have that time between me and God and think about where I stand with Him. Where are you at this evening? Have you given any serious consideration to that? Does the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, does that appeal to you at all? The rest that Jesus is inviting you to come and to receive? I want you to know tonight that you cannot have that rest separate and apart from Christ. You're just never going to have it. Your life will always be chaos and disorder and it will be everything that Jesus does not want people's lives to be. But through Christ Jesus, you can know the peace and the rest and the comfort and all of the blessings that we could enumerate this evening. You can know that through God's only Son. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian but you're ready to become one, I'm looking across this audience. I don't see anybody here who's never been here before, which means I don't see anybody here who doesn't know what it takes to be saved. Everybody here understands you need to believe in Jesus. Trust Him. Have your faith in Him. You need to confess Him before others. Let others know, yep, I believe Jesus is God's Son. You need to repent. Turn away from sin. Turn to the Lord. That doesn't mean you're going to be sinless, but it does mean you've made a commitment. I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to live for Christ. And then that culminates in the waters of baptism where we are buried with Christ, united with Him, and we become a part of the family of God. Can we help you tonight to take those steps and you can then begin to understand that beautiful rest that Jesus offers. If you are a Christian but you've not been serving the Lord as you ought to, brother or sister, you will never have rest either. As long as you continue to operate and live outside of the will of God. If you know that you're not in a right relationship with the Lord, maybe right here during this song, as we sing these verses of number 312, Are You Coming to Jesus Tonight? Maybe this is going to be those couple of moments that you need to just wait silently before the Lord and you think about where you are in your relationship to Him. If you need to repent, if you need us to pray with you and encourage you, we're ready to do that. Whatever your need may be, you simply need to make that known. You can do that by coming to the front. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.